0: One of the nice things about Bev being with me is that uh, you know every, every good instructor learns early on, probably in high school uh, teaching, um, to get out that meter that you use for students to determine whether what they're saying is valid, truthful, <laughs> grounded. you know the meter I'm talking about, right? Okay. So Bev's that meter here today. So you can, you can take a <laughs>
1: Take a certain amount of solace
0: in the fact that Dev is that is that person for me today and for you. Uh, there we go. Oh, that work. The technology is wonderful. Um, it's great to be here, Anna. Thank you, um, and Harry. Thank you. Um, what you may not know about the degree, just really quickly, is that uh, Anna and Harry went to bat for us um, at the university senate for this degree that um, our. Myself and my colleagues have had envisioned uh, delivering together with Acadia, and, and one of the very first things I think I remember saying to Anna is, you know, we do messy really well um, uh, when it comes to these sorts of things because, by and large, uh, uh, First Nations, Métis, Inuit people, other Indigenous peoples of the world have had a hard time navigating secondary, never mind post-secondary educational systems, and as a consequence. Um, we don't have a long, deeply rooted history or track record of having done it well and without uh, a lot of, of mess, and so it's kind of like herding geese. If you, if you watch Canada geese and you try and herd them down the road, there's lots of squawking and noise and flapping of wings and, and so forth. And then, and then after they've passed, there's this stuff that they leave behind. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and it's that sort of experience um, dealing with indigenous peoples many times their history uh, and experience has created this framework within which they find themselves living and, and it's really that that I want to talk about today and I just want to set a bit of a groundwork now I'm I'm, I'm going to break one of my own sort of hard and fast rules I hate springboard preaching. Uh, you bounce once on the text and land somewhere um, uh, and I'm not going to quite do that. Um, but I, I do want to simply point something out as a means for you to appropriate some of what I want to talk about with respect to reconciliation, particularly the outcomes of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and now that they have spoken truth to us, or at least introduced us to the truth of Canada's experience with First Nations, the Métis and you know, Peoples and Residential School what the R in that might look like. What does reconciliation look like? Or at the very least, what are the kinds of things that we as um, followers of Jesus and um, and people who are Canadians need to know in order to engage the R in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in a meaningful, intentional, and hopefully uh, godly way. So the text is that uh, Joe had asked before and Anna is Genesis. Uh, it's a familiar text, Genesis 2, 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I know that every one of you here has heard somebody at some point in time preach a sermon on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. or or at least uh, framed the passages that they were using uh, with this frame around it. Uh, We're here in this situation because our first parents decided to eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's kind of like, here we are, lower than snakes, bellies in a wagon rut, because our first parents consumed the fruit of this tree when they weren't supposed to. I know you've heard it. I know you've heard it more than once. I know you've heard it multiple times. But I can virtually guarantee that with few exceptions, most of you will not have heard a sermon rooted in that other tree, the tree of life. And yet, it's intriguing. It's the first one named in this duo of trees in the midst of this forest and garden. It's the first tree named, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think the sequence is important. I think it's important because it sets... Uh, at least in my mind, a stage for my thinking about what if kinds of questions. What if our first parents had eaten of that tree first? And, and we, we know, or at least we make reasonable and well-educated assumptions that they didn't, because the end of the sto- of story of uh, this part of the narrative in Genesis is that they're turfed out of the garden, and the way is closed, and they are prevented from coming back, lest they eat of this tree. So we can assume that they, that they hadn't. Instead they'd eaten of this first one uh, that we think about, uh, which isn't the first name, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What if, what if they'd eaten of the other tree? What would have happened? And I, and I want to set up this juxtaposition for you for what I want to talk to you about today. What if we thought differently than we currently do about First Nations made people? What if our perception of them was not through the lens of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which has created both the theological frameworks uh, within and upon which mission has been built, but also the societal values and attitudes that Canada has been framed in, largely rooted in their Christian history. What if we were to instead be looking at First Nations people through the lens of the tree of life? What if we were to look at them differently than we do? So I want to set this juxtaposition up for you. What if we were to look through a different set of lenses? So many times I find myself looking at someone who's looking at me and wondering to myself, I wonder what he or she is thinking. And while admittedly I do not look overly indigenous to many people, I'm not like my dad. Couldn't mistake who my dad is. The same is nonetheless true, though, for those of us who do look Indianish. There's suspicion of native peoples born out of an ignorance of our common history, framed in stereotypes. I remember seeing a cartoon last week on on Facebook. I love Facebook for this reason, for this reason only. There are these wonderful cartoons, and the cartoon was, Uh, A picture, really, not so much a cartoon, of a woman in a clothing store, evidently in a mall, and her greeting. Welcome! I can see that you're a native person. Would you allow me to follow you around the store? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Danny. So when it comes to conversations around reconciliation and just what that might mean, one must inevitably begin with the need for a fuller education concerning how do we got this place in our common history. Yes, I know that sounds trite, and probably something you've heard before, but it's what's necessary, and it is in significant measure what the TRC has been about, the T part. What do we need to know, and what haven't we known, and what do we think we know that we really don't? Perhaps you've not thought of it this way, but it seems to me that if you examine Christian history, You'll note that the starting point of our Christian theology has been a significant determinant of the directions we took and the places we arrived, particularly with respect to mission. I mean, the moment you perceive a human being as Lord and snake's belly in a wagon rod, it affects how you engage them, what story you tell them, how you frame the story. If you frame it in light of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it produces a certain kind of outcome. But if you frame it in light of the tree of life, did you know that God placed in the garden the tree of life? That we might eat of it. And did you know? And of course, the tree of life, where does it appear again? It appears at the end of the story. Revelation 22, now bifurcated. A tree on each side of the river of life, flowing from the throne of God. Twelve crops of fruit produced in their season. I think Job did something with that, didn't he? It's curious that he did. And the leaves for the healing of the nations... There's the tree of life at the end of the garden, but we, of course, know it appears a third time. uh, a few more times, but a third significant time in the center of the narrative of Galatians chapter 3. Cursed be any man who hangeth upon the tree. See, for you and I to hang upon the tree, we bear the just penalty for our wrong. Jesus hangs on the tree, takes the entirety of the curse of all time and humanity, and he turns the curse, the tree that is the curse, into the tree of life. Pretty cool, eh? So, so what if we were to tell that story instead of, you are about you sinner. I was in a northern community and this wonderful Baptist preacher, a northern community that's had the gospel for two centuries preached to them. And this wonderful preacher, you people are evil. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Your cultures are evil. The way you think is evil. Even as you speak, you're like, I'm dumbfounded. Where does this come from? Uh, comes from our history, comes from our theology, comes from our starting points in the text. Perhaps you've not thought of it that way, but it is, uh, curiously enough, how we get where we get with First Nations people. With respect to knowing and understanding Indigenous people, most Canadians are otherwise well-informed people who, when they hear their local MP, we hear a bit of that, when they read Christy Blatchford or Andrew Coyne of the National Post, or Margaret Wente from the Globe, or when they listen to Rex Murphy, or sound bites on their favorite radio or TV station with no other frame of reference into which to place the issues, nonetheless assume the worst and adopt the stereotypes. It's not simply a lack of knowledge of Canadian history. However, this isn't just the only roadblock to a significant effort for all of us to be reconciled. It's the lack of any real and intentional personal context into into which to insert one's ideas about indigenous people. I remember walking down the hall of the Weston Hotel toward the National Prayer Breakfast and hearing my name called, and looking around, I see it's the former Minister of Defense. And he says, hey, come on over here, Terry, I want to introduce you to my wife. His his first wife had passed, he had remarried, I'd never met her, she wanted to uh, meet me, I walked over, we were introduced, and she asked me where I was from. And I said, do you mean where I'm from? Do you mean where I live? Or do you mean, well, what's the difference? So I gave her the story. And of course the story included some stories about my father and about this, that, and the other thing. And particularly about my dad's generation fighting in the Second World War, losing their status, all that sort of stuff. To which Paul's wife replied said, is that true, Paul? And he hung his head and nodded. Now, she's a well-informed person. He's a well-informed person. They're well-educated people, but they haven't got a clue about the history of Canada with respect to First Nations people. They don't know the history. And they assume that because there are these multi-generational issues in our communities, that it's because we're lazy, no good, drinkers, whatever. They do not understand how we got where we're at. And the TRC is really telling the truth about that in a small measure. And inviting us to engage that truth, that story. Whether earlier immigrant or more recent, however, many if not most Canadians continue to labor under the myth that this is Canada and is therefore different than India, Africa, or other parts of the world with respect to the colonial experience of its original inhabitants. And I want to tell you it isn't true. The only thing different between India and Africa and the countries of Africa is that the colonial people are no longer there and in power. Like, this isn't Canada because it's Canada. It's Canada because colonial people are still here and still in power. That's what makes it different than India or Africa. Nothing else, folks. It's as colonial as it gets, and it's still colonial today for those of us who are First Peoples. Like, think about it for just a second. Just because we call it C-A-N-A, (laughs) D, A, doesn't make it different. Or the U.S., (laughs) A, doesn't make it different. Colonials are colonials are colonials, whether they're kicked out or still here, right? You decry the situation in Kenya or Rwanda or Uganda and the aftermath of colonialism there, what makes it different here? You're still here and you're still exercising power through things like the Indian Act. John Ibbotson in his January 24th, or January fourteenth, 2013 Globe article offered a backhanded slam of Aboriginal people and Idle No more. When he observed that while recent immigrants may empathize with Native Canadians, most are willing, even eager, to integrate into Canadian society. It would hardly be surprising in that case, he goes on to say, if they had only limited empathy for native claims to land and sovereignty, and little sense of collective responsibility for the poverty on many reserves. What Ibbotson's article points out is the significant inability, dare I say, unwillingness of Canadians and Canadian governments to embrace, understand and learn from our collective history. I'm not suggesting they don't read about history, nor study it to some extent in school. What I am saying is that Canadians are largely unable and unwilling to acknowledge that the compounding effects of hundreds of years of colonial racism and injustice created the current reality. And the ongoing manifestations, which they now bemoan, are an outcome. It appears that in this respect, indigenous people might echo the words of Martin Luther King Jr. When he said, you deplore the demonstrations that are presently taking place, but I am sorry that your statement did not express a similar concern for the conditions that brought the demonstrations into being. Martin Luther King Jr. letter from a Birmingham jail. If we're so to be reconciled, and that's what the second half of the TRC mandate is all about, it cannot be on the basis of that was then, this is now Get over it. It cannot be. And yet I dare say that this current government, and I'm going to say this politically, This current government, supported by Evangelical Christians in significant measure, thinks exactly that way because Evangelical Christians are a product of their theology. And the theology I'm talking about is just what produced them. Nor can it be yet another expression of just become like us and just fit in. We are all treaty people in Canada, whether Euro-Canadian, Ghanaian, Sri Lankan, or First Nations. The treaties we, our, our forebears signed together described the way we would live together in this land we now call Canada. And it was not assimilation. We must come to grips with not just how we got here, but why we are staying in this awkward, intense situation in which we now find ourselves. So that you might understand just a little better what I'm talking about, allow me to use several quotes, and I think there are many I could muster, to recreate the trajectory that Canada took that shaped our joint history a track that is largely continuing on today. I, I want to use these quotes, I want you to understand that this is not a 100-year-old issue, or a 50, or 120, or 140. It is a significant trajectory that Canada took. If they are savages, it is to domesticate and civilize them that we have come here. If they are rude, that's no reason that we should be idle. Here we are, Jesuit Revelation 61. So just as we must proceed with the temporal and the working of the land and its subjugation, as it is convenient to do so, so in the same proportion with the spiritual, we should catechize, instruct, educate, and train the savages properly and with long patience. Here we are Jesuit relations 1616. As time went on and the course taken by colonial powers and their missionary shock troops had become not only well established, but also eminently visible, Various historical retrospectives would emerge to define this unambiguous intent. John Loftus suggests that the Jesuit attack pedagogy was aimed primarily at undermining the life world foundations of Indian ways of life, to undermine the Amerindian cultural foundations. Now, if you think this is old, 2008's apologies not even finished ringing in the halls of parliament and the current federal government's policies of assimilation are gearing up yet again in the northern territories, we call the Northwest Territories, as they seek to divide and conquer 21 communities that comprise the Detcho people who have lived on the land together culturally, linguistically, supportively over centuries and centuries as they seek to settle land claims to their benefit, not to the benefit of the First Peoples. And I know this for a fact because I was there doing six days of governance workshops for the Grand Chief of the area with his people as the federal government officials descended on them to try and pick them off yet again, one by one. This is a year after the apology for doing just exactly that in schools. So the Days go on, and in in, uh, 1885 we hear these words, Indians are simply living on the benevolence and charity of the Canadian Parliament, and beggars should not be choosers. Sir John A. Macdonald, Prime Minister of Canada, 1885. And then as we enter the 20th century, the architect of much of the federal government's attempts at assimilation would proclaim, it is the opinion of the writer that the government will in time reach the end of its responsibility as the Indians progress into civilization and finally disappear as a separate and distinct people. Dr. Duncan Campbell Scott, Administrator of Indian Affairs, 1920. Nor has it changed dramatically today. Our current Prime Minister makes this quite clear in his inability to assess the true nature of Canada's history. I quote, 2009, just after the economic collapse, he notes these things. Canada remains in a very special place in the world. We are the one major developed country that no one thinks has any responsibility for this crisis. In fact, on the contrary, they look at our policies as a solution to the crisis. We're the only country in the room everyone would like to be. We're so self-effacing as Canadians that we sometimes forget the assets we do have that other people see. We are one of the most stable, I like this word, regimes in history. We are unique in that regard. We also have no history of colonialism. No, seriously. So we have all the things that people, many people admire about the great powers, but none of the things that threaten or bother them. Stephen Harper, the G20 Summit, as quoted in Writers, September 25th, 2009. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the micro-sketch of the candidate you did not study in school history, and which therefore has ill-prepared you for the reconciliation we so desperately need today, and for which the TRC commission was, at least in part, formed. So if we're going to talk about the R, we've got to know the T. And while the truth part of the Commission's work was undertaken with as much effort as they could muster, the tragedy, folks, is that most Canadians didn't participate. The bigger tragedy is that the majority of Canadians who didn't participate, that could have participated and should have participated, were Christians.
1: It is still what motivates much
0: of its drive, this is how Canada became what it is with respect to Indigenous peoples, and it's still what motivates most of its drive toward an unrealistic prosperity for others at their expense. <clears throat> Even as Canada continues to ignore the demands for real and authentic consultation required in its own Constitution Act of 1982, we are the only people entrenched in the Constitution as people. Group. We are entrenched, Indigenous rights, pre existing rights, Aboriginal rights are entrenched in the Constitution, 1982, that Pierre Elliott Trudeau repatriated to this land. We're entrenched. We're there. We're stated specifically. And yet, its citizens benefit from the wealth obtained at the expense of Indigenous people, and in abrogation yet again of the treaties we're all party to. For those of us, are followers of the Jesus way, we need to be quite clear that as often as not, king and country act in contradiction to the call of the king of kings. And I note this reflection on the central doctrine of colonial expansion, the doctrine of discovery, when it was noted by the highest court of the land that the doctrine of discovery was deployed in the service of property rights, but its continuing power and legitimacy following the end of Christian monarchies dependent on assumptions of race that, as we have seen, influenced people like the great John Marshall, and continue to influence this, the highest court. The doctrine of discovery. It said, we have a right If we discover it, that's a simplification. To ignore history is to ignore the colonial period of pillage in the guise of civilization and Christianization. This is our history. We want to engage mission in a meaningful way. We want to honor the person, the work, the life, the teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we need to understand, with respect to at least aboriginal people, indigenous peoples, and our mission with them, to them, for them, that, that this is where they come from. This is where you come from. This is where we intersect. This is our history. How do we change it? If we overlook the subjugating economic frameworks within which humanity has and continues to labor, we're in trouble. If we overlook the continued drive of human beings for bigger, better, more, faster, the engine which powered the colonial enterprise from the very beginning, requiring the use of slaves in plantations, fields, and orchards, we're in trouble. To deny our need to know the whole story of our Christian colonial past is to suggest that settler definition of Christian faith The one that was central to the drive of the colonial enterprise is the one we still lean into for all those who refuse or embrace, as is clear in the rallying cry of evangelism in the early years of mission. And I quote, if you do not do it, then with the help of God, I will undertake powerful action against you. I will make war on you everywhere and in every way that I can. I will subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and of their highnesses. I will take you personally and your wives and children to make slaves of you, and as such sell you off, and I will take away your property and cause you all the evil and harm I can." Now, this is a Catholic statement, but let's not, as evangelicals, be too smug, as if somehow we did not participate in or benefit from this, or still do. It's important that we understand that our history is rooted here, too, as evangelicals. Perhaps even more dramatically, we might be guilty of identifying with one of the church's great theologians. Unbelievers deserve not only to be separated from the church, but also to be exterminated from the world by death. Thomas Aquinas, some Theologian in 1271. The lust for more, bigger, better, faster still has humanity in its grip. It was the drive of colonialism. As you make your way home, just look around you at the massive homes we allow to be built, sheltering three to five people. I did a fundraiser last week, invited to a beautiful home. Two people living in it, somewhere in the order of 10,500 square feet. Lovely people. I just, what do we think about? Where are these juxtapositions? If that's not sufficient to convince you, give some thought to the human penchant for new and better which drives the individualist marketing techniques of young people, Facebook, Google, and every other media merchant who can muster technical savvy. You and I are marketed to every moment of the day. They know me better than I know myself. The moment I search somewhere on Google, it appears on my Facebook page. And if that's not ugly, I don't know what We're units of consumption, the focus of the marketers and promoters of more. Ultimately, the same drive that pushed Columbus and others across the oceans of the world in search of treasure, which which built on the theology, juxtaposing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, built on the theology that did not start well, they engaged in mission that didn't start well and still has not ended. We have to think about this. We want this to be different. We want to see people come into an authentic relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, the one who reconciles all things to God. Mm -hmm. This is our history as people have tried different ways to do it. This is the situation in which we find ourselves. This is the trajectory on which Canada was set from the various early days of discovery of Europeans on our shores. Now notice how I put that various early days in which we discovered Europeans on our shores. We were not the ones who were found. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you suppose it feels to be told you were found by somebody who was lost, right? <laughs> <laughs> the short set of vignettes I've offered ought to make it more than abundantly clear that what it is that we must do to be reconciled here in Canada and within all of creation. To suggest confidently that we've moved beyond this is to ignore the palpable ignorance and racism that has reared its head once more in many places in Canada, never mind around the world. To decry the need to study more carefully the history that has pushed us into this present moment is to ignore the fact that Indigenous people still hold to a different vision of the world, by and large. It is to misjudge their efforts to ring the alarm bell through actions and protests like Idle No More awakening the world to the consequence of the continued drive for progress and prosperity, saying no to pipelines across environmentally sensitive lands and waters. Failure to understand this means we fail to understand the heart and soul of all of these initiatives that seek not only for their own well-being, but for the well-being of all who live in the treaty territory. This is the focus of the second half of the TRC mandate. And I say to our own chiefs when I speak to them that if, if the reconciliation part of the TRC means us getting our fair share of the pie, which some say is what it should be, then we need to be conscious that when we participate with Canadian mining companies engaged in mining in the, uh, in the ring of fire in Northern Ontario, And we want our fair share of the pie in being stakeholders and shareholders in those corporations. That when those same corporations are involved in mining in the Philippines, forcing their governments to force them off the land, then we become colonial. I say the same thing to our people. We must act different, And we must act with a different set of values than we have. Having reflected earlier in this piece on the motive and ideology of colonial advance and, cult and consolidation reflect now on native life in the early days of our encounter. And in this respect, I consider all these poor savages whom we commiserate to be very happy. For pale envy doth not emaciate them, neither do they feel the inhumanity of those who serve God hypocritically, harassing their fellow creatures under this mask, nor are they subject to the artifices of those who, lacking virtue and goodness, wrap themselves up in a mantle of false piety nourish their ambitions. If they do not know God, they're speaking of Mi'kmaq people here, Uh, if they do not know God, at least they do not blaspheme him, as a greater number of Christians do, nor do they understand the art of poisoning or of corrupting chastity by devilish artifice. Mark Lescarbot, French lawyer, 1610. And then this interesting quote, moreover, if it is a great blessing to be free from a great evil, our savages are happy, for the two tyrants who provide hell and torture for many of our Europeans do not reign in their great forests, I mean ambition and avarice. As they have neither political organization, nor offices, nor dignities, nor any authority, for they only obey their chief through goodwill toward him, therefore they never kill each other to acquire these honors. Also as they are contented with a mere living, not one of them gives himself to the devil to acquire wealth." Pierre Lejeune, Jesuit relations, 1634. So. Reconciliation, followers of Jesus, some of this is a brief touching down on mountaintops of our our history as Christians in mission and the outcomes of it. And we cannot distance ourselves from it. You can say that wasn't us. That was a previous generation. But what I've tried to tell you is that that goes back to our very beginnings and continued on throughout, right up to the present day. This has not stopped. So, reconciliation at least in part means stop doing what you were doing that caused the alienation, right? When we become reconciled to God, we're expected to stop doing what caused us to be alienated from God. Now, I know that it happens by his grace, but I think Paul's clear. What? Do I sin the more that grace may abound? God forbid. See, so there's something of an activity that must take place. And the very first one in reconciliation is, stop doing what you did. Mm-hmm. See? And, and I, I want to say to you, the trajectory of Canada makes it clear that that has never happened. And still isn't happening, despite the apology. The federal government of Canada and its bureaucracies are continuing in the same vein, with the same objectives. Bigger, better, more, faster. Prosperity for some at the expense of others. I want also to say that the biblical tradition, the biblical literature, and our own experience makes very clear that the only time human beings experience prosperity, somebody else pays the bill. Every time. No one experiences prosperity without somebody else paying the bill. What do you think Jubilee was about? It was about ensuring that all the bills... We're called in and leveled, so we can start again, so there is no multi-generational oppression. That's what it was intended for. What do you think Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 8? Let the one who gathers not share with the one who gathers, not by way of hardship, but by way of equality, so that at a future time, their abundance will be a supply for your want. See, we have to stop and think about these two things in tension. Where do we want to be? Tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How do we bring life? What does life look like? So the real question of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as it wound down, should be, to what and to whom do we wish to be reconciled? And what is the starting point we establish in order for that reconciliation to occur? And I think biblically, there's a good foundation. Pragmatically, though, maybe we need to change. Maybe we need to change our objectives. Maybe we need to change our thinking. And certainly, I think we need to change our theological starting points. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, the gifts seen and unseen that we receive from your hand each and every day, and the blessing that they are in our lives without which we would be not just lost people, but uh, unable, unwilling, disinterested in knowing and experiencing you in our lives. Thank you for the blessing of your Son, he who came and uh, gave his life, not simply to be a a penal ransom, but to be a ransom for all of creation, that it might be healed and restored uh, to the intent and plan that you had for it from the beginning. Thank you for the Spirit of God, for your Holy Spirit who comes and instills in us installs in us, blesses us with the gifts that we need uh, to live into life in a good way I pray that in some way something we've talked about here this morning might inspire each of us to think about reconciliation and the truth and reconciliation commission in a different way and might inspire us uh, and encourage us to live life differently and uh, to think about the the terrible importance of doing mission well, speaking words of truth and life well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.